All right, so we have just finished the introduction, actually. All of chapter one is just an introduction to James, basically outlining a bunch of topics. And now in chapter two, James is jumping into the topics themselves. He basically walks kind of uh, part by part through different things that he thinks are crucial to understanding and living out the Christian life. And remember, he's writing to persecuted Christian Jews scattered throughout the whole region. And he could write to them a number of things, hundreds of things that they could hear. But today, James chooses to talk about partiality and favoritism. That is the subject that he wants to talk about today. All right, so what is partiality? Well, simply put, partiality is favoring someone for a bad reason. Now, you can favor someone with, with good intent. There are certain people you're supposed to favor. So I favor my wife above all others, right? She gets more of my time. She gets more of my energy. She is favored by me. You're supposed to favor your kids over anyone else's kids, your spouse over other people's spouses. There's an appropriateness of that when there's a special relationship. That is appropriate favoritism. Now, that is not what we're talking about today. Partiality is going to be favoring someone for illegitimate reasons. In our passage today, he's going to be favoring, uh, he's going to talk to the church as they are favoring people who are wealthy. But we might favor for a number of reasons. We might favor people of a certain race. We might favor people because of their intelligence, what they wear, how they talk. You, there's countless reasons why we might favor one group and look down on another. Now this ah, it seem, can seem like small hat to us, considering all the sins that this church was probably experiencing and the struggles of our own church. But James actually makes this a really big deal. He hits this sin especially hard in this book, the sin of partiality. And so today we're going to hear this commandment to show no partiality. And it's going to be grounded in, in three things. It's going to be grounded in the fact that partiality itself is rooted in selfish, self-serving evil judgment. It's, it's judging others. We're going to see that it's contrary to the kingdom of God as a whole. And third, we're going to see that it's contrary to the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. So as Christians, we firmly believe that that we have cast ourselves fully upon the mercy of Jesus Christ. That that is the only reason we have any value. That is the only reason we are loved. It's because of the mercy of Jesus. And so to then turn and mercilessly judge other people based upon worldly values is not only deeply hypocritical, but James tells us it's deeply sinful as well. All right, so heavy topic. Let's jump into James 2. We're looking at James 2, verses 1 through 13. All right, James 2. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, 
Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones those who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal scripture according, the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. All right. So as I said, this is, this is a, a heavy passage. Verse 1 lays it out pretty clear and simple. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now that's the main point of this passage, is to show no partiality. And we have to sit with that commandment. This is not a commandment that we just get to kind of feel bad about today, and then can go and uh, continue to break for the rest of our lives. We are truly to show no partiality. And we're going to be kind of learn how we can do that today. So what does partiality look like? Well, James gives us a nice example. Here is partiality based upon wealth. Verses 2 through 4. Now, there's a rich guy. There's a poor guy. The rich guy comes in, and he gets pushed, put in the seat of honor. The good seat. And they literally tell the poor guy, to the, you can stand in the back. You can, you can sit here on the ground. Right. They have made distinctions. That is partiality. They have favored the rich man over the poor. Now, why does that trouble James so much? If we look back at the passage, it says that you have then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. So his problem with this is that it turns these Christians, these believers, these Jewish uh, Christians who've been scattered throughout the land, it turns them into judges with evil thoughts. All right, so there's a, first of all, problem with being a judge. We have a judge. We have the Lord Jesus Christ. He is to judge. We don't need a bunch of other judges running around in the church. But even more, these judges are corrupt. Judges with evil thoughts. They don't judge as the Lord judges. And today I want to talk about what might be leading them to judge the way they do. What are those evil thoughts? What are the motives that are rooted in their hearts that lead them into favoritism and partiality? Now we're going to talk about three today. And I don't know which one is actually playing out in the hearts of these men. I think all of these play a role when we are playing favorites and being partial. So we're going to walk through them, kind of talk about them hypothetically. All right, first off, maybe these Jewish Christians are poor 
and they want money. Now, they've been cast out of their homes. They've been cast out of their church. They would be poor. And so it's possible that they needed a church building, that they needed help. And here they have these rich guys. Why not favor these rich guys who can help us out? I think that's where we see the first motive behind favoritism. It's our own selfish gain. We want something from these people, and so we favor them. All right. Now, how might that play out in our church today? We have to recognize that some of us might be here with false motives. That we are not primarily here to worship the Lord, but we are, in a sense, seeking to, to use the people around us. Maybe we're using them for business contacts. Or because we feel lonely and, and just need someone to be there for us. Maybe you just want to be part of something bigger and more glorious than yourself. Some, some glory by association. Now, none of those things seem terrible, but they are ultimately using people and not serving them in the church. And when we are fundamentally coming to people, looking to use them, some people are going to be useful and some people are going to be useless. They're going to be useless for, for business, for friendship, for some kind of splendor by association. And so we see that favoritism can ultimately be a form of idolatry and, and false worship. We favor what we love we favor what we worship. And so if we favor the rich over the poor, we worship money. If we favor the powerful people, we probably worship and love power. If we worship and love this, just the fun people, the fun, exciting people, we probably worship pleasure and comfort. If we favor only the attractive people, we probably worship sex or our own vanity. So I'd ask you right now, who do you favor? This is not a hypothetical question. Actually, think about it. Identify it. Write it on your notes. Like, who, who do you favor? Who gets treated better? Who do you try to be around and try to, try to win over? And then behind that question, if we have a, do we have a, hmm, you all got one? <laughs> I'm sure we all have one. We should all have one. Um, behind that, what are we worshiping? What are we worshiping? Partiality is, is ultimately idolatry. That that person has what we want, and so we favor them. Ultimately, these people are kind of the, the saints of the religion that we are really a part of. The heroes of the faith are the rich, the beautiful, the powerful. And so we favor them. Now, if we really love Jesus Christ, who would we favor? We would favor those who possess Jesus. We would favor those who have this rich relationship with Jesus Christ because we want Jesus from them. We don't want their money or their power. We want Jesus. 
those are the ones we ought to favor, is those who manifest that mercy and grace and kindness of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, we are, we are called to repent of this idolatry, to remember that in Christ, we have everything that we could ultimately need, and we could seek those things in Christ and through Christ. All right, so that's number one. Secondly, what if it's not that these Jewish Christians wanted to get something? Maybe a little less hedonistic. Maybe they wanted to avoid something. These were persecuted Jewish Christians. Maybe they thought that if they could get some rich and powerful guys on their side, then the persecution would finally end. And that's where the second motive for favoritism comes in. The motive of avoiding suffering. Now, that's probably not going to happen in our case in kind of avoiding persecution. But we're going to avoid people who call us to suffer. So this is the question, not who do you favor, but who do you avoid? Who do you avoid? Maybe it's those people who talk too much, who talk incessantly. Maybe it's the people with the, the long-winded, boring stories. Maybe it's the people who, who just don't get the social cues. Partiality is when those kind of people don't get invited to your dinner party, when they don't get invited to game nights, when you intentionally don't have a conversation with them on a Sunday morning. That is partiality. Because oftentimes, uh, the poor, the handicapped, the weak, those people bring with them their suffering. They kind of carry it around with them. It might be that their suffering is uh, kind of contained in themselves, but it makes us uncomfortable. So we, do, we don't know how to help someone who is struggling. It makes us feel awkward that we don't know what to do. Or maybe we, we feel bad that we don't actually want to help as much as we feel like we, we are supposed to. And so we can avoid those people. You can avoid people who are suffering. But there's also the other group of people who force you to suffer. Right? That sitting through their stories is just hard work. And listening to bad jokes is hard work. And enduring their presence is, is hard work. So we, we avoid those people and we dishonor them because they cause us to suffer. Now, the great irony of that is that if we are avoiding suffering people, we would have to avoid Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is the suffering servant. And as we unfortunately have to learn as we mature, our association with Jesus Christ is going to cause us to suffer. That suffering is crucial to the Christian life because suffering is inherent to who Jesus is on this, in this world on this side of the kingdom. Now, we talked about a few weeks ago that we should rejoice in our suffering. And part of that rejoicing in our suffering is because our suffering unites us to Jesus, our suffering Savior. Now, that is a, a difficult command, but for those people who are weak and who are suffering, these poor... They're united to Jesus Christ in a unique way. Through their suffering, they can actually connect to Jesus Christ 
who suffered on the cross. And so we move towards those people as people uniquely able to understand Jesus Christ. We honor them accordingly. But we're going to take it a step further. We're going to actually desire to be in relationship with people who make us suffer because we ourselves, when we suffer, are united to Christ. Now that is, that is the radical understanding of James. That we would actually want to be around people who don't make us comfortable, but who stretch us and grow us because it will make us more like Christ. It will unite us to Christ in his suffering. Ultimately, we, we think we want to get away from this suffering, but we are called to be part of it through Christ and in Christ and out of our love for him. All right. Now, the third possible reason. Maybe these Jewish Christians wanted to cater to the rich people because they thought that that was how the kingdom of God was supposed to grow. Maybe they didn't have super false motives. They just thought, well, if we're going to build this kingdom, why not reach the cream of the crop? Why not reach the best of the best? And then the gospel just trickle down from there. Let's reach the rich to reach the world. Now, what's the motive behind that? The motive actually isn't that bad. The motive seems pretty good. It seems like, well, that's, they're motivated by growing the kingdom of God and preaching the gospel. And I think that's oftentimes part of how we defend our favoritism in the church, that we know we shouldn't be seeking out people to, to use them for what they have or totally avoid people because they make us suffer. But we make this justification, well, maybe I'm, I'm just nice to those who will really promote the church. Now that can play out and just, oh, I, see, I just want to see its work financed. Maybe we want to reach famous people so that they can preach the gospel to, to drones and drones of fans. Maybe we want a, a president who promotes Jesus Christ. And that's where we're going to put our energy. Now I think that takes us to, to the second kind of big main point of why we do not show favoritism. We don't show favoritism because it's, it's evil judgment. That's not good. But we also don't show favoritism because it's contrary to the kingdom of God as a whole. We have to ask ourselves, how does God treat the poor and the weak and the rejected? Verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Now, the poor are kind of the archetype for Christianity. The quintessential Christian is the poor Christian. And James isn't using that just in terms of finances. It's the, the holistic poor. Those who are poor financially, yes, but morally, spiritually, socially, intellectually, all of that poverty, those are God's chosen people. Those are people who are uniquely given value in the kingdom of God. He actually chooses them to, to bless above all others. If we see here, they're given two, two treasures. They are rich in faith. 
The poor are able to have, have eyes to see the things that are not of this world. And the value of the things to come. The glory of the coming salvation in Jesus Christ. And they're also heirs of the kingdom. They're not rooted in this life. They recognize that they're going to be rich in their inheritance. And so they're not looking to this world. They're looking to the world to come. That is why God chooses to honor the poor. He chooses them because they actually are uniquely able to see the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now, what's an example of this? So at the Cecil County Fair, the Cecil County Fair, you guys don't know what the Cecil County Fair, uh, <laughs> uh, the Cecil County Fair, uh, our fair, we had a booth there, and we're basically talking to people. And who did I meet who understood the kingdom of God the best? Yeah, Helena and Greg, they're smiling. Um, it was one of those hot, miserable summer days. It was, a, it was a rough process, the Cecil County Fair. And we're all just kind of zoned out, laying there. And uh, this guy comes up to us, about 20-something, um, clearly mentally disabled. And he sees our nothing but Jesus sign. And he gets excited and he asks us, do you know Jesus Christ? And we say yes, and this huge smile breaks out of his face. And he's like physically energized and starts speaking about his love for Jesus Christ and how thankful he is that Jesus Christ died for his sins and just joy that Jesus Christ was going to come back and make this world perfect, was going to make him perfect. It brought tears to our eyes that he could see the kingdom of God and he loved it and he was rich in faith. Now this man, he would have been virtually worthless according to this world. He was poor in, in every way you could think of and yet here is this man who was rich in the kingdom. Now that is... That is how our God is pleased to work. He is pleased to honor those who are weakest and poorest among us. That the world is not worthy of those kind of people. And then we have verse 6. But you dishonored the poor man. God, with this special love and devotion to those who are poor, we do the exact opposite. Instead, we end up judging people according to the world's standards and their values. And James actually says that, ironically, we're actually catering to the enemies of the kingdom. Verse 6. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? So the rich... The spiritually, morally, religiously, intellectually, financially rich are kind of the quintessential enemies of the kingdom. Because they hate everything that it stands for. They want to stay on top. They are rooted in this world. These are the people who blaspheme the name of Jesus. These are the people who are persecuting the church. 
And yet, here are Christians living by those standards, by their values, and not God's. When we think about this kingdom, we have to make sure that we're not confusing this kingdom with the kingdoms of the earth. Our kingdom is invisible. It is one in the hearts and minds of men and women. It's not built by grand buildings or governments or armies. It is, it is won by the Lord. It is, it's constructed by the very dregs of the world. That is how God chooses to build his kingdom. So that it's not anything that man does, it can be said that, no, this is, this is built by the surpassing power of God. God chooses to build his kingdom through the weak, through the poor, through the lowly. He honors them especially. And so when we want to build this kingdom, we should go to those who are truly rich, who are rich in our kingdom, not rich according to the world. No, we go to those who are rich in faith, who are heirs to the kingdom. Because they will, first of all, understand what this kingdom is about, and they will also grow it in a way that brings honor to the Lord. So let us honor those who are poor and those who are weak as God has honored them in his kingdom. Finally, we're to show no partiality because it is contrary to the law of love in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. This is James's summary of all of the law of Jesus Christ. To love others as you have, loved, uh, have, as you have been loved, essentially. To love as Christ loved you. That's ultimately what it comes down to. If you're looking for how the kingdom is to express itself. And why does partiality not fit? Partiality is loving people according to how the world would love them. According to their inherent value. And not according to grace and not according to mercy. Now if we break this law of love. James doesn't just give us a slap on the wrist. This is serious business. Verse 9. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Now, what is this saying? This is a hard passage. So is James basically saying that, no, you need to go obey the word. You need to go keep all of these laws. If you break one of them, you're done. That, that is what it sounds like. I think in one sense, it's giving us what we are giving other people. That this is the law that we are submitting other people to. This is a law we are holding other people to. And James is kind of asking, is this the law that you want given to you? Is this a law for us? Now we know that 
We are not saved by our works of the law. We are not saved by what we do. We are saved by what Jesus Christ has done. We are saved by his mercy and saved by his grace. But our understanding of that gospel is expressed through our love of people. If we love only those who are inherently valuable and who we can get something from, it shows that we don't understand the gospel. We don't under, really understand grace and mercy. That we don't actually have a part in this Christ that we say that we love. But after coming to real salvation, after coming to know that we are saved by grace, then we actually can move out and love people with great mercy and great grace and great compassion. Verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In Christ Jesus, mercy triumphs over judgment. That Jesus receives us while we are still the spiritual trash of the world. He received us when we were mean and arrogant and selfish and cruel. We are people that, that Christ is right to judge. And yet he did not judge us as the world did. He could have judged us as the world did. He could have only picked the fun, rich, powerful people according to his standards. But then he would pick no one. None of us would be picked. No, Christ didn't judge us like that. He judged us with mercy. He judged us with grace. He chose us to be sons and daughters, not because we deserved it, not because it would get him anything, but he chose to suffer for us. That is why we come to people expecting nothing from them. And that's why we are willing to suffer for people because that is what Christ has done for us. The law of love is to respond to Jesus Christ in his love for us. That is the law of liberty. To love others as you have been loved. And we're reminded by James that the judgment that you use against others is going to be used against you. So if we have no mercy for the people around us, we will receive no mercy. But if we have grace for them, it proves that we understand the gospel and grace is received in turn. All right, so how is that a law of liberty? Well, first of all, we don't have to submit to the values of the world anymore. We're not trying to become rich and powerful and influential. No, we're done with all of that. We receive all of our value, all of our love, freely from Jesus Christ. We stop fighting for it. Now that should keep us from favoritism. Because we don't have anything to gain from these people. We have everything that we need. And we can move towards these people, not to, to use them, but to love them. All right, so what do we do when we do judge others? What are we supposed to do with that? Because we're going to. We're going to break this law. All right, it's no different than any other sin. We repent. 
we confess it to Jesus Christ. That we tell him, you know, I just, I just walked by that lady and thought, white trash in my head. You tell him that. You confess that and, and you repent. Going to Christ, recognizing your sin and saying, that, that is wrong. We have a gracious Savior. Thankfully, he receives us when we do that. But that's not the end. We also remind ourselves that we are the weak and the poor. That we are the spiritual trash. And yet Christ loved us. We're not just saying, oh yeah, I sinned, but I'm just going to keep going. No, we remind ourselves what is true. Remind ourselves of the gospel. That we are no longer under that judgment. And we shouldn't put other people under it either. That we have been found under freedom and mercy and grace. Ultimately, we are to remember the fact that God has chosen to be partial towards us. That we have been a recipient of his favor. That in Jesus Christ, we are his chosen ones. We are the apple of his eye. We are those he adores because of nothing that we have done. Out of that great love, let us move out and love others. Let us show people that our kingdom really is one of mercy and not judgment. Let's pray. Father, we praise you as our merciful Father who adopted us as sons and daughters and chose us for this special relationship, not because of what we have done, but because of Jesus Christ. We thank you that he suffered on our behalf. We thank you that he receives us asking for nothing. And so, Father, we ask that we'd go into this world asking for nothing from it. Would we be the spiritually poor that we may have eyes of faith and become heirs of your inheritance? Father, we ask that we would so love you and so rejoice in your mercy that we would show mercy to others. Free us from judgment, Father. We pray in Christ's name.